even as an individual, when you go out and you plant food and you bring it into the house and you literally feed your family, not go to a job, get some money, go to Safeway and then bring that food home and make it. Not that that isn't important, but there's a different feeling when you grow your food and bring it in and fill those bellies, right? This is so rudimentary, honestly. It is empowering. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravey, and I am the host of the show. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Chris McLaughlin. Chris is the author of nine books written about her life's passion, nature, gardening, small livestock, and the family farm. She's been gardening for over 40 years and has enjoyed rural living on five small farms. Chris became a master gardener in 2000 and acquired certificates in programs such as Food, Land, and People Project, Kids in Gardens, and Backyard Wildlife Habitats. Her written work can be found in Fine Gardening Magazine, Hobby Farm Home Magazine, Urban Farm Magazine, The Heirloom Gardener Magazine, and Mother Earth Living. Online, she's been a staff blogger for FineGardening.com and others. Chris and her family enjoy a happy and exhausting life in the Northern California foothills on their farm, Laughing Crow and Company. Today, we're going to be exploring Chris's latest book, The Good Garden, How to Nurture Pollinators, Soil, Native Wildlife, and Healthy Food, all in your own backyard. I'd like to start out by reading the introduction in Chris's book. And the introduction is entitled, What Makes a Good Garden? Garden seed sales hit high records in 2021, growing even from a huge spike seen in 2020 after the emergence of COVID-19. There's plenty of speculation about why. Part of the reason may be more people working from home or simple boredom after months spent cooped up alone. But I think something more fundamental is going on. In this turbulent time of a worldwide pandemic, climate change, economic disparity, and culture wars, self-sufficiency is making a comeback. We all saw the vulnerabilities of our food system as meat processing plants became disease hotspots, and food banks struggled to feed the hungry. Those weaknesses led to question about how our food is produced, and they reinvigorated calls for big ag to adopt sustainable farming practices on a massive scale. We can put pressure on the industry to reform by supporting the multitude of small farms that are already using these practices successfully, but we can also take a more hands-on approach, grow some of our own food, and enjoy taking control of our food security. Chris, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to learn more about gardening. I live on a off-grid organic farm, and we grow a lot of food, but we're we're not 
experts by any means, and we're learning like so many other people. So I'm excited for you to share your knowledge with us and learn something new. Yeah, that that's great. Oh, how wonderful you live on that kind of um, uh, property. That's really great. Yeah, it's really wonderful. You say in your bio that your life's passions are nature, gardening, small livestock, and family farm. Can you share with our listeners a little of your background? I mean, how did you develop these passions? I mean, honestly, I think I was just born like this, you know, into that, like seriously in my genetic code, which is funny because my parents are not genetically inclined to do any of this. So um, I've always felt like I was this old McDonald child born into an IBM family. Um, my parents <laughs> my parents were always buying these suburban homes and and I swear I felt tortured. They would they would buy them right on the edge of farmland, like right, the suburbs started right where they bought their house, and it drove me nuts because I'd look out the window and be like, I want to be over there, and and my parents were like, You want to be on a farm? What is up? You know. So my whole thing was uh, I wasn't born in a barn, but I got here as fast as I could. So I've always uh, the earth and the soil has always been a big thing for me, like livestock and. Uh, you know, and it's funny because it, it's all sort of a creative thing. And I, I really always enjoyed that. As I got older, I just started gardening. Actually, my mom had a small garden in the back and and uh, I gardened with her a little bit and started to kind of just go off on my own. And when I was 10 years old, I actually gathered up some volunteers in the yard, these little plants that would come up from seeds. And I put them in little Dixie cups. And I started walking them down the street in my little brother's red wagon. I sold them for 10 cents to the neighbors. So I always used to do the entrepreneur thing with plants. It seemed like from a very young age. But That's uh, great. Nature- That's great. Okay, so let's talk about your book, The Good Garden. You say in the beginning, your goal is to encourage people to grow the garden of your heart. And then you talk about how applying a blend of the good gardening practices will get you there. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you meant by that? Yeah, you know, what I what I have found is it's really interesting we start talking to people who are gardeners. And I think often they feel like if they want a garden, what they would think in their head is a proper garden. It might be uh, growing vegetables for their family or fruit, or it might be flowers, you know, um, or just landscaping in the front yard that just makes their home beautiful. They seem to think in terms of either or. So it's sort of like if you want all this to look really great, then, you know, you really have to control it. You have to get some pesticides out there, herbicides out there, really control how nature shows up, um, you know, in the form of bugs and any kind of tiny little disease or anything. And um, they don't seem to think that can go together. You can have the garden you want and still be really generous, you know, to the soil and the earth and the critters that live there, your whole little ecosystem going on. And so in there, I just give you some ideas. I mean, there's there's bigger practices like, you know, permaculture or French intensive gardening. There's these bigger umbrella practices However, what I found is among those practices are a lot of crossover techniques. You know, um, there's no-till, there's simply not using any pesticides at all on your property, which trust me, it actually works. So it's just, you have to be slower about it and intentional about it. 
But these, these little things you can borrow. You might even make your own compost pile. Some people, that's not their thing. Some people love that idea. So you really pick some things that are sustainable practices that that are calling to you that say, I could do that. I could, you know, that's cool. I would could do that. But I'm trying to let all of the average backyard gardeners understand that you don't have to put in to this situation. Every single practice out there, you don't have to do all of these things. If you just pick a few things to try and do to actually get away from, um, you know, harming, you know, your your wildlife there and your your whole ecosystem into itself and the soils, you'll find that those practices actually work. And so you can feel good about planting, you know, whatever kind of garden you want that you're going to get your bounty. And it might mean that you sacrifice a couple of leaves. So, you know, my idea really is to try to get people to understand that perfection is is really in the eye of the beholder, what we call perfect, Instagram perfect photos. That's fabulous, right? But if you just get a good point of view, you're going to get an Instagram worthy photo. When you back up the camera, you might see a couple of little leaves that have been chewed on by something, but you still have these fabulous tomatoes. Or maybe one or two tomatoes is messed up, but all the rest are great. That's successful gardening. Right. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it really is. We don't see it that way at first. I try to just show people you can really make a difference at your own backyard or front yard or what have you. You don't have to have a big farm or anything. And and that's why I wanted to interview you, because as as I mentioned in your bio and in the introduction that I read to our listeners, that so many people are wanting to garden these days and for probably a whole myriad of reasons, food security and just wanting to spend less money in the long run on food and grow your own and be more sustainable. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the nuts and bolts of your book where you explain I, I just want people to be familiar with these terms. Give us the Reader's Digest version of what is permaculture. How would you yes. explain it? Yeah, so permaculture, it, it sort of works with uh, harmony with nature, which is, of course, my overall theme anyway. But it, it's really interesting. They they support a healthy ecosystem by integrating, of course, native plantings. They do things like they're plants that work together in whatever way that they might. You might have the canopy of the um, garden, which would be fruit trees and things like that. And you go below that and you might have some shorter fruit trees or high blueberries. And then you go down lower and you might have herbs and things like that. So permaculture, all of these things are going to work together. It's actually a pretty, permaculture is super complex. So do you have any recommendations for our listeners who really want to dig into permaculture as far as, as good books or something that just would talk about permaculture? Because not everybody cares about permaculture and are going to use it, but right. just in case right. they are. Right. In case they are. Yeah. Um, so, and you, and also you, like I said before, borrow practices from some of these, you know, there's little steps inside there you could utilize without doing a completely permaculture garden, which by the way, is not always the easiest. If you have a super small property, that right. might be a little bit harder. So you might borrow practices from them. Uh, Jesse Bloom wrote a book called per, uh, Practical Permaculture, The Food Forest by Daryl Frey. Those are both, you know, good books for that. 
there is a great guy called David the Good on YouTube, and he talks all about permaculture and stuff. So, I mean, heading over to his channel, you really get a lot of, you know, interesting things from there. I mentioned permaculture in my book, mostly because, like I said, small, small backyard gardens may be able to do it to some degree, uh, the whole view of it. Mostly, I think they would borrow practices from it. Okay, great. And now the second one, which is, I don't know, I've tried to explain this to people, what biodynamic gardening is. Yeah, biodynamic gardening is super interesting. It's actually really cool. It brings in a little bit of, of philosophies. It's very, very old time stuff. Um, and it has to do with, I mean, even all these natural gardening practices, but also gardening with like the moon. The moon phases. And... The moon phases, exactly. They do preparations. They do specific preparations that they put together and spread out on their garden at different times of the year, different phases of the moon. But what's interesting is, so they think of, it, it sort of, it interconnects all living things on earth and the stars. It kind of really en encompasses everything. It's super, super interesting stuff. And I really wasn't allowed to get too deep into it in the book because they kind of went, whoa, <laughs> you know, sometimes it got, it gets a little woo woo, if you will. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is, is that farmers have been doing this for, I mean, I mean a thousand years. Right. I mean, Wasn't the, uh, Rud Rudolf Steiner, the gentleman that brought this to light? Yes, yes, he did. Yeah, he brought it and put kind of put it all together and explained it. And honestly, it's it's super interesting. And I think that on on the outset, if you're kind of looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, but if you just try it, you might be kind of surprised. There's certain things that make a little bit of sense. You know, when just like with the tides of the earth, when that when the moon is fullest, it's it's actually pulling those tides in more or what have you. <laughs> no expert on it. But the point is it, it's drawing. So what happens is their idea is that if you plant seedlings during that time, the during the, the full moon and stuff, the uh, not only can you see at night to do that, because <laughs> it is a full moon, but it's drawing this moisture from inside the earth up towards those roots more. So it, it makes a lot of sense in a lot yeah. of ways. Well, I think it's I think it's fascinating. And I, I I like when I drink wine, I like it to be organic and better yet biodynamic and yeah. i think it's the best of the best but anyway our listeners can look up more about that if if they're interested now you had another term in the book another type of gardening french intensive gardening i had never heard that before what oh, is it okay french intensive gardening i've practiced like my whole life and that's actually the very best one to do in a small garden it's basically when you look at the, the seed packet and it's saying, plant these 12 inches apart, the plants and all that stuff, you're going to throw that out the window. You're going to ah. put it's much closer together. The idea is that when the leaves are cut, so in my book, I talk about covering your bare soil. You always want to cover all bare soil that you can. So, I mean, it keeps moisture in, it keeps weeds from growing because they don't get to see the sun, that sort of thing. So the idea is that those plants are their their leaves are coming up and over and they're actually helping shield that ground even more. And so when you plant things much closer together like that, what ends up happening is you just get so much less weeds. They just can't compete with those plants you put rather than the other way where you've got this single plant and there's, you know, you know, 12 to 14 inches on each side of them, leaving plenty of room 
for the weeds and the sun to hit the weed seeds and stuff and them to come up. This way you're kind of condensing it. The only the only caveat to that is you have to know your zones in your area. I don't, probably don't mean zones exactly, but where you live. So we live in a very, I mean, we have no humidity to speak of. I'm in Northern California. We don't know what humidity is. We get a little less of the things like say on going back to tomatoes, they're getting the powdery mildew and stuff. We still can get that, you know, because it's, you know, a fungus. But the thing is, is that because we don't have that dampness in the air, we don't battle that as much. So I don't recommend really, if you live in, in a place with high humidity, I really wouldn't recommend putting tomatoes too close together because you're going to pass that on from plant to plant. Mm -hmm. But so you got to kind of know your area as well. But right. predominantly when you're doing French intensive, it's um it's just a great way to utilize every bit of space and also keep those weeds out. And it's so appropriate for small gardens. It's a, it's a great way. I mean, you're even watering less. I mean, if you think about it, you're, you, if you have your uh, soaker hose or whatever you might be using, your drip line, and you're going down a row, the row is quite small. And so it's kind of reaching both plants. You're watering less and I planted a bed in uh, in our greenhouse a couple of years ago, and I just planted everything so close. And I took a lot of flack <laughs> from others, like, wow, you've got a lot in here. It's everything's so pat, pat, tightly packed. And interestingly enough, that was the best they've ever done that year when I had them all packed in like that so that makes sense now and so so now i know how i have the term for it french intensive gardening i like it the french have done something awesome for the gardening and you know i was going to mention too in my book i go i'm kind of a gateway drug if you will so i'm kind of introducing people to all these different ways mm -hmm. that they can <clears throat> help their ecosystem and yet still have all the stuff they want and all that. So what I did was is chapter by chapter, I actually put in the resources section, I went by chapter and you can dig deeper. I put all these places and things you can go to find more on that topic if it's a topic that really interests you. So that way you can find it easily instead of someone might be looking for butterflies or whatever. They might not know the Xerces Society, which starts with an X is where to find that. So I put everything chapter by chapter back there. So you could dig yeah. deeper. I found it to be a very easy read and easy to look up things. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you do discuss in the book is um, the pollinators and wildlife. And you explain how we can welcome specific pollinators into our garden by choosing the right plant species. And I, I guess I knew that. Can you say a little bit more about that and how that works? Well, I think a lot of the times, I mean, most people, I think, realize that if you plant flower um, and native plants, native, uh, not necessarily native flowers, not everybody does exactly, you know, the exact flower for the area. But as long as it isn't invasive, that's what we're looking for to not plant. But so you just put some echinacea out there and you kind of know that, oh, I planted zinnias and obviously the butterflies come and obviously the bees and that's great. I mean, you're you're feeding these adult creatures and that's wonderful. But the next step to actually keeping a lot of pollinators in where you want them is to actually plant plants that they lay their eggs on and raise their babies on. So it's not just the food. You have to give them the plant that their babies would eat. And the babies are not eating flowers. They're eating the you know leaves and shoots of the plant. So 
a good one is to think about is like the, the milkweed for the monarch butterflies. So not only are the flowers great for the adults, they are, but mon um, milkweed is the only plant that the monarch butterfly lays its eggs on. If you plant those inside your garden, different places all over, you know, you're going to get the whole life cycle of them in there. They're not going to just fly by and happen to see your garden. They're actually going to be living there. So I try to explain that to people like, you know, try to give the whole the whole circle to those animals, that their needs, meet their needs on every level, not just, hey, I've got some pollinator plants for you, but also for their larvae. Yeah, that's great. And you also have a, a chart in there. I think I remember a, a chart that specifically what it will attract. and. Yeah, exactly. I do. I have a list in there. Um, and there's, I mean, it's. There's more butterflies than that list, obviously, in plants. But I talk in there about the ones that will attract the adults and the ones that they lay the eggs on. So you can kind of go, you can look at that and you could be like, you know, I'd really like to have this, um, the uh, swallowtails in my garden, you know. And so then you're going to plant correctly for them and try and coax them into your yard. So I mean, most people love butterflies. So and a lot of them have their favorites. And so it's just a way to plant for those. Right. That's great. Another thing you discuss in the book is predatory beneficial insects. Can you say a little bit about that? Right. So, you know, um, a good example would be because um, everyone gets them aphids. <laughs> yes. Very familiar with <laughs> them. The aphids, you know, by the way, funny thing about aphids, uh, they're an all female race until they need to mate again. Then they give birth to some males they mate. And then that goes away and they're all females again. It's really crazy. So wow. the babies are born females and they're also already pregnant. It's, wow. it's really insane. That's why there's so many. Uh, but anyway, so when you have those aphids, as much as you think like, oh, I got to get rid of them really fast. Well, you got your roses, you got a bunch of aphids, just gently spray them with water. You know, they'll fall to the ground, break their mandible. They're not climbing back up. I mean, more will come later, but... Honestly, if you give it a little time, what's going to happen is the lady things like the ladybugs. Ladybugs aren't the only thing that eat them, but ladybugs will fly in. They'll start to eat those little guys. And then pretty soon, you'll end up seeing these little red and black alligator looking things. They're very creepy. And those are the larvae of the ladybugs. And they eat like five times the amount of the ladybugs in terms hmm. of these soft-bodied, um, you know, aphids. So... Um, what happens is if you wipe out all of the, the bugs that are bothering you, that you think this is just terrible. I don't want this here. If you wipe those out, you wiped out the food for the predators, right? I mean, they're, the predators aren't going to come and live in your garden if you have nothing for them to, to eat. So you're really messing with the balance of that ecosystem. And also why we're talking about that is in terms of food when you want to get rid of all the caterpillars, and I don't mean the good ones that you've deemed lovely because they're going to be this beautiful monarch butterfly, just these other caterpillars that you go, oh, that's munching on whatever. The thing is, if you want birds in your yard, you have to let them have some food. And, you know, some birds are eating seeds and, you know, the the caterpillars, some of them are mostly eating the caterpillars. So, you know, if you want those those birds in your yard, they've got to have food. So when you kill off all the bad things, you kill off the food for the good things you like. So really, it, all of this requires just looking at a little bit from a 
this is a different point of view. What is perfect to you and what is actually perfect for you and nature? A few nibble, nibble leaves. Honestly, I don't know where we got the idea that maybe magazines and stuff, I don't know. But somehow we got this idea that nothing could look out of place or imperfect or wasn't right. And actually right. imperfection shows you your yard is part of the ecosystem. Yeah. So, you know, you do have to take matters into your own hands when things are being wiped out. And you're like, okay, let's see what we can do here. And then you start to address it. But you see little leaves here and there. We sacrificed some willows. We have some big willow. Um, they're trees, I guess. They're not quite trees yet. And we have a bunch of them. And we sacrifice one of them. We let the pipevine swallowtails just annihilate it. We, they just go to town. We have all these beautiful butterflies. So we have a bunch of beautiful willows also. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a way of looking at things. Yeah, we tend to get aphids more in the greenhouse than than outside, and that it it has become a problem. Yeah, yeah. And wh what do you suggest for that? Well, then I would bring in because they do literally sell, uh, you know, ladybugs, praying mantises, all kinds we, of. We, stuff. Yeah, we we've done that. Yeah, you can release <laughs> them out. But, but I, I I mean I have found mostly that is hitting them with a spray of water is what works the best, and you know. If worse comes to worse, here's the thing. There's places like Planet uh, Planet Natural. Mm -hmm. They have all kinds of, you know, labeled organic products for things. Right. Go down that product route. That's fine. I mean, if you have to, you have to. Yeah. But trying to do something that doesn't wipe out everything is really the point. And okay. Planet Natural has a bunch of great things that are, you know, organic answers. Okay. Yeah, and when you were talking about uh, food that doesn't look perfect, when I go to the farmer's market and buy something, which is not that often because we grow so much, but if I see some bites on a leaf, it's like, oh, great. I, I know they're not using pesticides for sure or, or herbicides. or Yeah, yeah. so I, I don't mind that at all. Yeah, yeah, and it's a mindset. See, you don't mind that you get it. I mean, you're thinking, oh, great. This is going to be a very fresh food, a very healthy food. But predominantly, people have been trained that that is not the case. Right. They have been trained that apples should have that polished wax on the outside of them, right? I mean, our yeah. apples on the trees aren't, I mean, some, obviously, some are a little shinier than others, depending on the variety of apple. But they tend to not be like that shiny wax perfection you see at the grocery store, because that's really not what apples look like. And just so our listeners know, they've heard me say this before. Apples are the most, some of the most heavily sprayed fruit yeah. out there. They could, There can be up to 45 different pesticides oh, uh, used yes. used on apples. So if, if you're if you're going to buy apples, absolutely make sure they're organic because yeah. they, they, there's some, you know, and there's the, there's a, even a GMO Arctic apple, which is really horrific because they have engineered a trait into this apple that it does not turn brown. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, it's called the Arctic apple. Keep in mind, it doesn't turn brown, but it still rots. Right. You just wow. don't see it rotting. And so you want to avoid Arctic apples at all costs. Plus the, the off-target mutations that can happen with this freight 
technology where they desired trait in in different foods is just so unsafe and so scary. So I just had to interject that in. No, I think that's great. That brings up another um, really interesting thing too. I just, I, I need people to know this because when you go to buy seeds, right? Okay, so obviously GMO and hybrid is two completely different things. Okay. Absolutely. Right? So I understand why they're labeling the seeds non-GMO because people think they can go to the store and buy GMO seeds. That is impossible. Mm -hmm. We cannot go to the store. You're not going to accidentally go online and buy or be at a store and buy GMO seeds. You cannot do that. When you're a farmer and you want to use GMO soy or corn or what have you, you literally have to go to that company and you're signing a contract with them and everything. Yeah. This is a process. You're never going to accidentally buy a GMO. But I understand why they started labeling the seeds. At first, I was sort of really annoyed with that practice because I thought, why are you advertising your non-GMO when you can't even buy GMO? What's your point? You know, like, and, but then I realized the public gets worried that they're going to accidentally buy GMO seeds. So they have to advertise on there. No, no, we're not GMO, but you're not going to accidentally buy them. You will yeah. want to. No, if you bought them and they're but, expensive. But yeah. I, I do believe in, in my opinion, it's, it's important to buy quality seeds. Oh, sure. And I mean, I, I'm going to plug them cause I love them. It's Baker Creek. Yeah, and that, that's where I buy almost all my seeds is uh, in that. Wow. Those are, those are heirloom. They're wonderful. Yeah. They're, I really, really like their stuff. And they are always finding all kinds of interesting new things to try, which is super fun. Yeah. It's yeah. not your, always your regular run of the mill. You can find all kinds of great stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about soil because that's where it's very important. Really tend your soil. And the more nutrients in your soil, the more nutrients in your food, the, the more nutrients in your food, the more nutrients in your gut, the better your health is. That's just the way it is. You talk about the importance of soil and you also offer some tests on what types of soil you have. There's clay, silt, and sand percentages. Tell us a little bit about that and why would that be important to know? Honestly, no matter what soil you have, obviously you can improve upon that by adding a lot of compost and things like that. Um, but, you know, it's just a balance of that. A lot of people have very sandy soils. And then what happens is they're watering, they're feeding them. It's all running through and, and not staying with the plants. So you're having to feed them more and more and more, just trying to get them to take it up. And they don't, you know what I mean? So, and then the clay soil is going to be the complete opposite. It's going to be something that stays soggy, uh, often hard if you're not watering it all the time. So in, in those cases, you all you're really trying to do is get that balance. For me, the easiest way, I mean, you can go have that tested. You can do like I have a jar soil test in there. That's fun to do if you love to do the sciencey thing. If not, you can send it to your local, um, usually an extension office will have soil testing and they can tell you what you need to improve on. But like, I don't bother with that. <laughs> I really, I kind of know you can kind of tell when you just do a little soil test with your hands, which I have in here, you do a ribbon test. I can kind of tell what's going on, but honestly, no matter what's going on for me, I am a compost fanatic. I compost, honestly, when it's com composted all the way down, I'm not talking a bag of pure manure. I'm talking about 
a composted variety of organic materials. That is basically so cool. Not only does it make your soil friable and wonderful, but it's very, very neutral in terms of pH. So almost all plants will love it. I mean, some things want something a little more acidic if you're growing a bunch of blueberries. Okay, that makes sense. But mostly in your vegetable garden, a balanced pH is what you want. I'm always adding compost. I'm a no-till gardener. I don't mm -hmm. till. It messes with the aggregates and all the things that are trying to come together in your soil. You're busting them up. If you're not into that, let me tell you what you are into. You are into no weeds. And I promise you, the minute you go out and till, you will bring up every weed seed for the past hundred years. <laughs> it will come to the top. It will get the sun. You will have more weeds than you've ever had. Honestly, if that's the only thing that stops you from tilling, have that be it. But we always just add to the soil, add to the soil. What ends up happening, even in a bed, we have a lot of clay here. And when we add things to our beds in terms of organic materials, the redworms are creeping along that top six inches of soil and they're ingesting that and they're ingesting the regular soil and they mix it all up for you. And so what ends up happening is a lot of that really nice compost starts to get turned itself into there because of the, the little critters turning it. So that always works out, you know, really nicely. And try to make your own compost is beautiful. It works great. I love it. I don't ever have enough of that. So I will go get organic compost and uh, bring it in if I'm creating new beds. And the only time I slightly till is if we have a new bed and the weeds are really deep taprooted weeds, sometimes we just till just the top couple inches just to get yank those things out. And then it's never tilled again. Then we're just adding, adding, adding. Another thing you can do instead of completely tilling is use a, a broad fork. And it's just like this big, wide kind of hay fork, it looks like. And you can stick it in and just kind of push it back and it'll lift your soil. And then you can spread your compost on that. It already kind of goes underneath, but you're not really tilling it. So I, I think that's a great way to go myself. It also is the wonderful lazy way. You know, honestly, it's it's a perfect way to do it. The earth loves you for it. Think of the forest floor. No one's chilling that. But at the same time, you don't have to do all that work. I think that's like a really big plus. So. Yeah, 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 it is. And and uh, keeping it simple will encourage more people to continue gardening. Uh, when it gets too complicated, I think people give up. Yeah, they do. They do. And and that's and that's the thing. That's kind of why I wrote the book. The whole premise of it was that there's so many wonderful books on, you know, how to treat your ecosystem and your soils and all, but many of them are so deep. They get so deeply involved that you, you're kind of nodding at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. That was great. How does that apply to me? I have this little backyard. How am I supposed to make any kind of difference? But it's amazing what kind of difference you can make and how that can be passed on in your community. I have a whole section in here on community and uh, getting people involved and talking to people about it and not being afraid to do that. One of the things we did in our community is we started a neighborhood food network. Ours is called the Plateau Neighborhood Food Network. 
And what we did was we started a Facebook group and I live in an area where people have farms and properties and are able to grow quite a bit of food. So we do a food exchange there. So Mm -hmm. let's say I have a whole bunch of kale, which I do right now, Uh, and I'm not going to use it all. We're not going to use it all. So I would get on there and say, I'm looking for, let's say I'm looking for avocados. I have kale. I'll trade kale for avocados. And what this does is it not only helps create community, you get to know people that you haven't met before. I think right now in our group, we have 107 people in the group. And you save money. You are creating more food security. You're eating local and there are so many benefits to doing this. And if again, I've, I've talked about this a lot, but if our listeners want to learn more, go to the neighborhoodfoodnetwork.com and they have the, the hows and whys of, uh, of starting this, including forms that you may want to give to your neighbors, the handouts, flyers. Right. They've done all the work and, and it's all free. That is so cool. I'm literally writing this down. Yes. And it was, uh, I'm the uh, board president of Moms Across America and Zen Honeycutt and uh, Ann Temple are uh, two people that are involved. Well, Zen started Moms Across America and, and Ann, who's just, in my opinion, a master gardener. They organize this and they have weekly calls and they invite gardeners, they invite experts on there to to help you with your gardening. And it's just a wonderful thing that anybody can do in their community, even if you're living, you know, in a neighborhood and people, okay, in my backyard, I got a ton of lemons. I wonder what they're growing. Maybe we have something we can trade. Well, you know, it's really, I think it's really neat you brought that up because it leads me to something else in the sense that, um, and I love, I talk about that in their um, community gardens and different things like that. But the other thing is that I really love about what you're talking about is that I have been writing gardening books for 14 years. And my whole thing, my whole mission statement, if you will, I got a lot of them because I talk a lot, but my main thing always and in this day and age it's really important that when you grow your own food and in this case you guys are sharing and trading it's this huge support system but even as an individual when you go out and you plant food and you bring it into the house and you literally feed your family not go to a job get some money go to safeway and then bring that food home and make it. Not that that isn't important, but there's a different feeling when you grow your food and bring it in and fill those bellies, right? This is so rudimentary, honestly. It is empowering. And you don't realize that you feel very much like, I did that. Look what I can do. And what happens is in this day and age of, you know, the whole job thing, the COVID, whatever, it doesn't even matter. We've gone through a lot of turmoil. I mean, you can't even list one thing. We've gone through a lot of crazy stuff. And it's been going on for some years, really. And you look at that, it spills over into the rest of your life. This I can do this attitude. I can actually feed my family 
uh, when things go wrong or whatever, it actually empowers you across everything. If right. I can do this, what else can I do? So when a whole community comes together like that, they feel supported. And that yeah. will cross over too when somebody gets ill. And someone says, hey, I haven't seen the lady with the avocados. You don't know what, what's happening. Right. There's a community that already cares about this person. Right. And I mean, really, you're building some really deep connections, which is really a huge point of all of it. Yeah. Is the connection with the earth and with our community around us. So I love that you're doing that. That is just, I love it. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, just creating that parallel food system is, is so important. Uh, I mean, I don't think the end of food shortages is coming anytime soon. And, and the prices, if if you've been to the grocery store, which I'm sure everybody has, you've seen what things cost. So there's so many reasons. And you don't need to have 46 acres to grow your own food. You, you know, you, you can. I visited uh, somebody that I met through uh, our homesteading group. And I went to her home to get some some goat milk. And when I went to her home, she lived in uh, a city not, you know, maybe a half hour away from me. I kind of expected her to live on this big farm because of everything she had been doing. And she lived on one acre. It wasn't maybe it wasn't even one acre, but the amount of food that she had and the herbs and her, when I saw her pantry, I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, People are incredible in what they can do yeah. on a small amount of land. It's amazing. And you start to learn different techniques like mm -hmm. um, succession planting, right? Yeah. You, lettuce grows incredibly fast, as you know. Like, my goodness, you can, you, for, I mean, four weeks after you plant a seed, it's on your table. It's right. Like right and then if you were doing head lettuce where you would harvest the entire head mm -hmm. as opposed to leaf lettuce where you might you know be picking out the leaves you can have seeds starting and then when you do that head then the little seedlings go right in to replace it i mean there's tricks to putting as much as you can on your table i mean there really is and yeah. uh, so it's yeah it's it's and it's fascinating to do and you know when i wrote this book i was so excited too because Every single thing I talk about in this book, we live on five acres, but honestly, I've got five acres and, but I was doing every bit of what is in this book when I lived in suburbia in a regular neighborhood, all regular lot sizes and everything, whatever that might be. Obviously, lot sizes might be different, but it doesn't matter. It's a neighborhood where the houses were right next to each other. And I did all of these things with the exception of I didn't have my goats. My goats were there but I'm not going to lie to you. I hid two potbelly pigs. Um, and I, yeah. had, <laughs> I, did, I did, I swear to you, mm -hmm. but I also had four hens, which were completely allowed, obviously mm -hmm. no pictures, but I had four hens. So I was getting eggs. I was getting herbs and food and it was ridiculous. I mean, it, you know, well, you also talk in the book about raised beds and container gardening too, because you know, somebody listening may, may live in an apartment or a condo. And they have a balcony that maybe they can put some containers on. You can, there, there are so many options for people to at least grow something. And I think it's important to engage our children in the oh. whole growing process so that they know where their food comes from. Absolutely. I will never forget my son. He was very little at the time. 
And I was saying, let's go pull out the carrots. Let's go harvest these carrots. And he's like, yeah, those are carrots. He's just this little guy. He's like, those are carrots. I'm like, yeah, they're carrots. And you know, he's seeing the green top, right? And then we pulled them out and his eyes were huge. And he went, those are carrots. <laughs> right? <laughs> like he knew it somewhere in his head because he was told they were carrots. But really seeing that, like that, we really eat those. Those are really in our refrigerator. Like, yes, they are. You know, so it's fascinating for them. And they love, and that's our next generation of, you know, um, you know, of gardeners. Hopefully, and- hopefully gardeners and farmers, because we yeah. need them. <laughs> I know, right? No, that's really yeah. true. You know, I was going to say, even my neighbor, which, um, oh, I had done this many times and, and never really thought really to do that here because we all have land, right? Mm-hmm. But they have a garden and they just thought they wanted less weeding and stuff. They have a beautiful, large garden. And they went out there. And like I said, I've done this before, but it was in suburban areas. And they have in that garden, the round kiddie pools, which they have poked holes in. And they grow, you know, their, their cucumbers and things all in there. And they don't get any weeds because, of course, they brought, you know, compost in and, and soil, organic stuff. And so they don't have to weed those, but but right there, you know, you don't need as the depth of soil that you think you need. Everyone's wrong about that. It drives me crazy. It's like they're putting these beds in there 24 inches deep. And I'm going, uh, yeah, you don't need that. Um, but so I think it's really neat that even on a farm, they live on a farm and they're, they're utilizing all the same stuff you would utilize in a smaller area, you know, because it's smart. It makes sense and it works. So I really, you know, I really want to encourage people that you definitely don't have to live on a farm, not not in any way, shape or form. You right. do this at home. Well, you know, we could talk about gardening forever, but I really enjoyed your book. And uh, like you said, it's kind of the gateway book yeah. for for people who want to garden. And it's easy to read. It's easy to follow. I learned some things when I was when I was reading it. And I love that you had that list at the back of the resources for people who want to delve in a little deeper and learn, for example, about permaculture, because a a lot of backyard gardeners aren't aren't going to use permaculture. Yeah. But and I'm so happy you finally put a name to the way that I garden. The French intensive. I can't wait to share that term. <laughs> right? It's great. It's my favorite. It's my yeah. favorite. Yes. The book is really comprehensive. It's an easy read, and I highly recommend it for anyone. And they can, can they find this anywhere, any bookstores or? Yeah, yeah. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, but also indie stores. You know, if you have local stores, hit them up. Because they need the business, and um, yeah, we're kind of like in a lot of spots. Of course, the indies get to pick and choose what they're they're getting, but I would look there first, and then then hit up Amazon and yeah, okay. Uh-oh. And again, the book is called The Good Garden. So thank you, Chris, for being a guest, and thanks to our listeners for joining us. And don't forget to check out my newest podcast series which I started with Dr. Rosie Kuhn about three months ago called Beyond Food Integrity, Thriving Like a Guru. So we don't just talk about food. We talk about all different aspects of life and 
and things that have worked for us so that we can really thrive and not just survive. And I think you'll find that interesting. So you can check that out. Just go to foodintegritynow.org and click on the Beyond Food Integrity tab and you'll get to listen to those podcasts. So thanks again, Chris, for being a guest today and appreciate your book and all your wisdom. Yes, thank you so much. It's been really fun. Yeah, it has.